Alright, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we have been studying the, the life of Saul. And in that time, we have, we've seen him make some big mistakes. Um, we've certainly seen Saul receive some criticism. Um, Samuel has criticized him. His own son, Jonathan, has criticized him. And there have been others, that voices that have criticized him. And you might would say that's unfair because Saul has not been king for a long time and he wasn't raised to be a king. So how should anyone expect him to, to be that? But the thing is, his uh, mistakes are so fundamental that anybody following God should be able to uh, at least be aware of these mistakes. Um, We've got to keep the things that he's done in context. We've got to remember the things that he's already done, the mistakes he's already made, the mis misunderstandings he's already displayed. We've got to keep that in context or we won't fully understand what's about to happen here. Um, today, we're going to see the moment that Saul broke the trust of the Lord and lost his favor forever. So that's something that's important. Like when we, when we see what Saul does today... Um, when we read this, we need to value it like God does because, because what Saul does in God's eyes is so horrible that he removes his right to reign. Okay, so when we look at it, we see, well, Saul did mostly what he was supposed to do, um, but we're not called to do mostly what God tells us to do. We're not called to do mostly the right thing. We're not called to obey most of the laws of God. We're not called to be mostly a Christian. We're called to be all the way. And that is where Saul falls short. And it's definitely, um, it, it's, it's definitely what gets him in trouble. And it's probably what gets us in trouble uh, more than we would want to admit. Uh, so the sermon in the sentence is this. God is loving and patient, but he does not tolerate willful disobedience. You can already tell this is going to be a rough one because there's not a whole lot of like good... Like I had to add some nice words at the beginning of the sermon and sentence because when you get to the point of the passage, it's harsh. So let's get into this. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 15. We'll read the whole chapter. It says, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has sent me, or the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. By the way, this kind of picks up, like just out of the blue. So we don't know the exact chronology of it it just it picks up and it tells us this thing happened and here's the results of that so that's why we just start in the middle of the conversation Samuel said to Saul the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel now therefore listen to the words of the Lord thus says the Lord of hosts I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Telim, 200,000 men on foot ten, and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. 
So the Kenites departed from among the Amechalites. And Saul defeated the Amechalites from Havla as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amechalites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep of the uh, and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is the, this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amechalites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amechalites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pronounce on the spoil? Why did you pounce on the spoils and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amechalites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the word has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie 
or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites." And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gebeth of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. How are you going to make that positive? Well, we'll try. All right, so first of all, uh, I think we get a clear command. Like Saul receives an abundantly clear command, and, and that's how we're going to start this. So uh, it is difficult to know the chronology of this passage. In fact, there are several kind of, I guess you'd say, mysteries um, surrounding this, but it seems like it follows very closely after the events in chapter 13. So in 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul was instructed to wait for seven days and then Samuel would show up and make a sacrifice. Well, on that seventh day, Samuel didn't show up in the morning and so Saul went ahead and made the sacrifice and then Samuel arrived immediately. And even at that time, already, uh, Samuel had said, your dynasty won't last, it won't be your household that rules over Israel always, it'll be someone else. And so we already have that kind of setting the tone that, 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 that Saul was unaware of what was his role and what was the role of the prophet, but also he was impatient and he thought that he could edit and change God's directions and orders to better suit his own needs and his own timetable. Um, so when we, when, we see that, when we see this passage open, um, we see that Samuel has come to Saul, and we don't see like a royal summons or anything. Samuel just comes to Saul on his own, and we know that this is going to be an important message uh, because Samuel presents his credentials. Hey, it is me that God called to anoint you as king. So listen to God's word on this matter. So he makes it pretty clear that this is a really big deal that he is about to tell him about. And um, what we see is that God has a very specific mission. And so the background for the Amalekites is this. When God was bringing Israel out of Egypt and they were on their way to the promised land, um, it was um, Amekel, or however you want to say his name, that, that leads his army out to attack the Israelites. They were tired. They were certainly not equipped or ready to be in a fight, um, but they, they attack anyway. And, and, and the, the, I guess you would say the, the, the cheap way of doing it, they attack the supply train at the end. So they attack the, the stragglers. They attack those that, that, that are burdened down with you know, either like sick animals or young children or whatever. They play dirty anyway. That's, that's kind of the, the gist of the story. And so Moses sends Joshua with an army to fight the Amalekites. And in this particular battle, Moses finds that he has to stand above the battle and hold his staff up. And while he's holding his staff up, 
Israel is winning. When his arm gets tired and he lowers his staff, that's when the Amalekites start winning. And so in that story, um, Aaron actually brings a stone and, and, and Moses sits down and then he helps him hold his staff up so that the Israelites can win. But God remembered that attack and he remembered that violence. In fact, there's another passage in which God says he is going to devote them to complete destruction. There's a point where God says he will blot them out of memory that nobody will even remember them. So these are promises that God has made that that day the Amalekites made an enemy and God would revisit that aggression against his people. And so what God is doing now is giving Saul the honor of fulfilling a promise that God had made long ago. So the Lord gives Saul a high honor by sending him to destroy the Amalekites. He is the agent of God's faithfulness. Remember, faithfulness means keeping your word, and God has a word that he has to keep. And so he allows Saul and this army to be the agents to keep God's promise. So this is an important thing, a very, very important thing. And, and it would be a great honor. And so we see that with this, Saul should have definitely taken it very, very seriously. So what is the command? Um, the command is to wipe out everything. Not just everybody, but everything. And so when you read that list, the first time you read it, it really makes you sit up and listen. Men, fine, they're combatants, right? Women, ooh. Children, oh no. Infants, why? And then you go on and you see all the animals, which it, it becomes horrible, right? It becomes this thing that you're like, why, God, would this have to happen? But it is God's word. It is what God has said. And we don't have to understand it. Saul didn't have to understand it. And what we see is that it doesn't seem like killing people was any problem at all to Saul. But it, when it comes down to the animals, that's where we start getting into a little bit of confusion there. And so what we have to see here is that this is a type of war, warfare that God had practiced in the past. He would practice it again. But either way, he makes the command clear. The command is clear, but harsh. Nothing can be spared. So we saw the same command when God sent the people of Israel after Jericho. Remember, all the things that they did walking around, but when the walls fell, they were supposed to come and destroy everybody that lived there and then take all of their valuables, all of their goods, and destroy them in the middle of the city. And it was Achan that took a little bit back, and that was what caused so many trouble, or so much trouble for the people before. So this required destruction. It was a solemn task. It was a holy task. Um, and um, the, the, the people that were doing it were the agents of God's judgment. And so it's an important thing that they had to do this. And in this particular case, the soldiers were not allowed to profit from God's judgment. See, he's giving them total victory. Everything that this people group had accumulated in all of their existence was there for the taking, but God had judged that they ceased to exist. And so because of that, God had declared that his judgment, his people, would not benefit financially from that. That's why they can't keep the animals or the younger people or any of the valuables or goods because God doesn't want them profiting off of this. This is judgment. This is not an opportunity. This is judgment, and that's what God has put before them. So in this case, <clears throat> the warriors were supposed to receive their satisfaction simply from obeying the word of the Lord and doing what they were supposed to do. This does conflict with the picture of God that many of us walk around with. And, and I'll tell you, reading it and preparing for it, it does conflict 
it, it, and, and I have to readjust because it kind of conflicts with the image that I have of God. Because when we think about God, we think about love and mercy. We think about forgiveness. We think about kindness. We think about faithfulness. There's a lot of really good words we use. And, and even a lot of times we use a word like justice or we use a word, uh, you know, the Bible says that God is a jealous God. We use words like that, but this still isn't the picture that we have in our minds of a God that has decided judgment and it's absolute. But what does the gospel say? The gospel does tell us that Jesus is the way, that we follow Jesus and, and we are saved. And, and, and when we are saved and we are brought into the family of God, we become part of his family, we become joint heirs with Christ, that we spend all eternity with God. But what about those that don't follow Jesus? What does the gospel say about that? They are rejected. They are judged. They suffer for all time. And who's that going to be? Anybody that doesn't receive the gospel. Doesn't matter how good they are. Doesn't matter how many good things they've done in this world. Doesn't, doesn't matter. God will devote them over to judgment. So this is the same God. It is the same God for Old Testament, New Testament. God has always been just. Yes, he has provided ways for redemption. But he has also always been a God of justice. And so when we look at this, this definitely seems harsh, but what we have to recognize is that you don't make an enemy of God. These people made an enemy of God, and that was a major problem for them. God takes his word seriously, and we, we should definitely take it seriously as well. We should never take the Lord's mercies for granted because he demands obedience. That's the first three verses there. We look at that and we see that God was expect. He was very specific. He was very clear. There was no point in which he said, and Saul, save back an offering for me. Saul, don't kill the king. There was, there was nothing like that. This was utter judgment, and God made that clear. We have to realize God is merciful, but when we direct, directly and willfully disobey his commands, that becomes a major, major problem. And so now let's look at the disobedience. And so this kind of takes us into verse 4 through uh, verse, verse 10 when we, when we look at this next part. Um, so when Saul summons his army, he is rewarded with the second largest army that the Bible ever records him commanding. Um, you have to realize there weren't standing armies back then. Saul would have had a personal guard, but there weren't standing armies. So when you make the call and say, hey, we want you to come out and fight, well, it kind of depended on what kind of mood people were, were in, whether they were going to come out and fight or not. And he had 210,000 people in this army, so that was a, that was a reward from the Lord. Um, the locations that are mentioned, um, the places where, where Saul probably was when he gathered his army, we're probably talking southwest of Judah, and so that whole fight is pushing down towards, if you can kind of envision in your map Saudi Arabia, because you can envision Israel, and then Saudi Arabia opens up, and then Egypt is over here. Well, this whole little part of Saudi Arabia that kind of circles around the Mediterranean Sea, so you can imagine all of that, that's roughly where all this is going to happen and how it's described. And so we see that, so that these names of places aren't found Archaeologists haven't been able to pinpoint that, but that does seem to be uh, the, 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 pl the place that it was. So not only does God give Saul a good army, like a, a large, large army to fight this battle, but he gives him a perfect place. Saul is hiding in a valley. He's ready to spring an ambush. And so um, you have to realize that, that the Amekalites never saw this coming. And so that also, gives, uh, that also speaks to the ways that God blessed him. So God grants all the resources Saul needs to obey him. 
he's going to have the element of surprise. He's going to have a big army and God is fighting for him. So there's no reason that he shouldn't have done what God told him to do. Um, and, and Saul does show acceptable mercy because there's the Kenites. Now, this is the only time they're really mentioned. We don't know about what Saul references. You were kind to us when, when we were coming in. We don't really know about that in the Bible, but whatever it was, this would have been an acceptable mercy because the Kenites weren't under judgment. So he allows them to escape um, before he attacks. And so uh, it's definitely something that would have been, um, I guess you would say, beneficial. So the way that the Bible descri describes this battle is that when the Israelites fell upon the Amalekites, they spread in like this line of destruction that would have stretched from Arabia almost to the border of Egypt, and, and they would have been moving. Now, this was possible for two reasons. One, it was possible because there was a very large army, so they could carry, cover a lot of ground. The second part is they were under orders to take no prisoners. Prisoners slow an army down, and especially when you're starting to, to try to take things from them or, 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 or herd them along, and you have to realize that prisoners were a source of income because then those prisoners could be sold. And so there was, there was I guess you would say, money involved in it, and they certainly weren't allowed to take any of that at that particular time. So what we see is that it doesn't even describe a battle. God provides, God grants an unquestionable victory to make obedience possible. There, it doesn't seem that there's resistance. There's no description of resistance. There's no point in which it's, you know, kind of back and forth. Moses doesn't have to hold his arm up for this one. This is, this is utter destruction. They were ready for a fight and the Amicalites were not. So up to this point, Saul has been very obedient. As we read this, we see that he's done everything that he's supposed to do. But it's actually in verse 9 where things start to change. It says, but Saul, which is always a bad sentence there, but Saul and the people spared Agag. And then it lists off all the livestock that they spared as well. And I'll just point out the end of it. It says, um, all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So what did they do? Just take out the trash? It doesn't seem like they, they destroyed anything that was worth having or, or, or good. They just destroyed the things that were, should have been thrown out anyway. Um, so this is, chapter, verse 9 is where everything goes really, really bad for Saul and all of these people. So Saul preserves um, Amechalite, the Amechalite king. His name is Agag. Now, you might can see some of the reasons why he would not want to kill a king. You set the precedent for killing kings and you happen to be a king yourself, that makes it a little bit more deadly to be a king. Um, so maybe we can see why he did that. It's not okay, it is a sin, and it was enough to, 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 to take the kingdom away from him. But you can see from a human perspective why he might have started doing that. But then the soldiers that were under him, and, and, and you have to realize that, that no matter what Saul says, he was the leader. And so when he started breaking God's command, that's when the others began to follow suit. And so the others began saving animals and, and saving valuables and saving things. And it doesn't mention specifically that, God that, that the people saved a bunch of possessions and valuables, but they did. They would have saved possessions and valuables as well as these animals. Um, and when it says that they were ready to just give them all as an offering to God, Probably all doesn't mean what we think it means here. They were going to enrich themselves during this battle, and that's the whole point. God had given them that great battle not so that they could get rich. He could provide for them. He had given them that great battle as a judgment, and really, ultimately, God was showing, hey, Israel, these people attacked you when you were weak. I have made you strong and gave you victory. God was showing them that he was faithful. But even when God's showing them that he is faithful, they are taking something that isn't theirs. Because they, they, 
they wanted to be rich and they didn't trust that God would do that. Yes, God just made them into a mighty military. They just defeated their enemies. But they couldn't trust that God would eventually make them wealthy and prosperous. And so that was why they were taking at that moment. We have to recognize this as an evil sin. This is not just people can't see wasting things. Some of us are good at going and throwing things away. When you go to a closet and you see this, and you're like, oh, we're going to throw this away, we're going to throw this away, throw this away. Some of us collect more and more and more stuff. And there's always a use for it. I can't tell you how many jars of little nuts and bolts and, and, and little things that, that, that I have, you know, the little anchors that you put in sheetrock. I've got buckets of stuff like that because you might need it one day, right? Um, when, when I do wiring, if the wire is still that long, you can use that for something. So, so you keep it. You don't see wasting it. You don't see throwing it away. Probably could get some amens on that, but I won't ask. But the reality is... That wasn't, it wasn't just save it. That wasn't the mentality of the Israelites there. They were going to get a little wealthy here. They were going to get a little for themselves here. So we have to see it for the greed and the evil that it really was. This wasn't being conservative. This was ultimately being sinful. And so that's what we have to recognize with this. And so um, we see that this happens repeatedly in Scripture. And I tell you that it still happens in the world today where people under the guise of serving God... They try to enrich themselves in a dishonest way, and that is not a good thing. Absolutely, that's not a good thing. And, you know, the, the reality is, yes, each person made their own decision, but when we see all the blame come home to roost, it does come on Saul's shoulders because he's the one that started it all, and he is the leader. He's the one that was responsible. So Saul refuses to obey the Lord fully, fully and he saves things that the Lord had condemned. Let me tell you, you do not want in your possession or in your presence or anywhere near you things that God has already condemned. You do not want that in your life. You know, when I was thinking about this passage, certainly when I was thinking about how do we apply this, what, what is this like? Well, really, it's like everything. What are the things that God has condemned? How many of those live in this world today? How many of those function in our realities? What things that God has condemned do we allow in our lives? What things that God has condemned do we say, well, that's not that big of a deal or that's not my business or whatever we might say. What things that God has condemned still has a place among us? The people of Israel let those things have a place among them and they receive judgment for it. How do we think we're going to get off any differently? We've got to be careful about the things that we allow into our lives because certainly if God has condemned it, it does not belong. Um, we don't have to understand what God says about, because this is a scorched earth policy, we don't have to understand that. You may or may not come to an understanding where you say, yeah, I see why God is saying this. We may or may not see that. We may not understand it. But we've been told in Scripture that His ways are not our ways and that His ways are higher than our ways. So when God says something, even if you don't agree with it, you're the one that's wrong. I am the one that's wrong when I don't agree with what God says. And so we just have to obey we have to submit to Him. We have to trust Him. We have to obey Him. So we've got to trust the Lord regardless of our opinion of what it is that He might be saying. Because the reality is, He will have His way. You know, I think the soft way to say it and the way that you'll probably hear it in a lot of churches is, God works everything for good. And that's in the Bible. But I think that we need to hear this morning, God will have His way with or without us. God will have His way. If we will not serve God fully, He will find people that will. 
Just remember, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, that triumphant entry, and, and, and the, the religious leader said, make these people be quiet, and, and Jesus said, if these people weren't talking, these people weren't celebrating, God would make the stones shout out. If we won't serve, if we won't obey, God will raise up people that will. We have to understand that God is still in the business of just, justice. He is still in the business of judgment. He is still on the throne. He is still the ruler. We have to remember that. So this, top, this part here is, is going to be even more difficult. So the stern rejection, pretty much verse 10 through the end of the chapter, that's what we're looking at here. Um, Saul's incomplete obedience, and that's all it really is, is incomplete. Did he do what God told him to do? Meh, yeah, for a little bit. And that's what we have to recognize is that's not good enough. It's not good enough to be mostly obedient to God. It has to be absolute, and he was not absolute. So this prompts the Lord to talk to Samuel. So Samuel has a dream in the night, and in that dream, God speaks to him, and, and obviously it wakes him up, but, but Samuel gets straight from God that Saul has been disobedient. Nobody has to come tell Samuel that Saul's been disobedient. He knows from God. And, 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 and here's something, this is the first thing that, that I think we need to point out. Um, in verse 11 it says, I regret that I have made Saul king. Now, reading that, it, it, it almost sounds like God's saying, I made a mistake. And that's not at all what he's saying. When we look into that word, the word is tied up in grief. God grieves that he made Saul king. And the reason he grieves is because Saul has made bad choices of his own volition. We have to recognize that the responsibility is on Saul to be the king that God called him to be. God anointed him. God set him up for success. And, and, and that was one of the points of some of the early sermons was God gave Saul everything he needed to be a good king. He gave him a prophet in his own land that would tell him the ways that he should go, the things that he should do. He gave him success against all of his enemies. Even in this, Saul is being judged for winning a battle but not doing it God's way. So we have to see that God was more than good, more than faithful to Saul, but Saul was unfaithful to God. And so that's what we see here is, is that from the very beginning, Saul was making bad choices of his own will, and that is what God is grieving. So we definitely want to point that out. God didn't make a mistake. In God's eyes, uh, incomplete obedience is the same thing as turning our backs on him completely because that's what he says. So God grieves the decision Saul had made, and Samuel grieves with him. The prophet was so in tune with God that the things that upset God upset Samuel. Oh, Lord, that American Christians would be the same way. That we would be the same way. That things that upset God, that offend God, that would bother us. It seems irreverency is a whole new style of comedy now, and it's just okay to make fun of the things that God would be enraged about. We have to realize it ain't worth the laugh. It's not worth the laugh. I can remember back in the early, I guess it was the early 90s, um, a show came out. It was animated, and I thought that cartoons were for kids. It was The Simpsons. And people were saying, oh, this is so funny, this is so funny, this is so funny. It came on, we didn't have but one TV, and, and I begged and begged and begged, and Mama didn't know anything about it. And so I know we watched it one time, and the one time we watched it, they had God on there. And it was just this big joke, and it was making fun of God. Well, that never came on in our household again. And, and we have to recognize that that's been going on now. When I say the 90s, think 30 years. Now, that's a whole other conversation that makes us all feel old. But that happened in the 90s, and, and, and it's been going on. 
And I don't think the Simpsons were the first people to make God into a joke, but all this time, it's, it's, been, it's been kind of softening the holiness of God. It's been undermining the judgment of God. It has been altering or changing, at least in the public perception, the strength of God's Word. Did God really say? The Simpsons didn't come up with that line, by the way. That was Lucifer. That was Satan in the Garden of Eden, and he's been doing it ever since. Did God really say that this is bad? Y'all don't want us to go through a whole list of things that are bad, that happen every day in America, in, in every home in America, whether it be Christian or not. We don't have time to go through that list, did God really say. And think about all the ways that, that morality, that God's law, that what is right and what is wrong has been softened in some ways. But that's exactly what Saul did. We have to recognize that God does not take kindly to that. For God, Saul had turned his back. And Samuel was in tune with God in that moment. He grieved with God. He cried out in anger with God over those things. Sometimes we're lucky if we change the channel. We have to recognize there is a major, major difference. So early the next morning, Samuel sets out to find Saul. And it may be hard just reading in, in English about this, but, but Samuel goes to where Saul should be which is to de devote to God, to spend time with God, to bow before God, but that's not where Saul is. Samuel finds out one of the first things Saul did was go and build a monument to himself of his victories and of his greatness, and then he was going down to Gilgal. He was going to a place that was, had military significance, so it was like he was kind of firming up or shoring up his military because when you have a battle like that and people are gathering all the spoils, your military spreads out, so it would have been like a rally point. And so he was seeing to his army. And when he sees Samuel... I really do believe that Saul knew something was up and he just figured he could talk his way out of it because just like we've seen before, Saul sees Samuel and he's like, hey, Lord bless you. I, com I completed God's commandment. You know, we're all good. We're doing the same thing, you and me. Samuel wasn't having it. Samuel said, if you did what God told you to do, why am I hearing farm animals? Why am I hearing all that going on? And so immediately, Saul begins to make excuses and justifications. Um, Saul is blind to his own sin and tries to excuse and justify his actions. You know, he talks about, well, I, I, I killed everybody. The people needed the animals or wanted the animals or wanted to devote the animals to you. We, we did what we were supposed to do. I just didn't kill the king and I didn't kill all these animals because reasons and excuses. And just imagine how miserable that would have looked to Samuel who had not slept a wink, had been in sync with God, grieving over this sin. Sometimes when something's bad, you just want to get it over with. You just, you, you don't want to hear excuses, you don't want to hear reasons and justifications. Sometimes when something's bad, you just want to get it over with. And Samuel went with business on his mind, and here comes Saul making excuses. You could see how it would be almost nauseating at that particular time. So, there's reasons and excuses for all the things. All the things that I have heard people say, well, yeah, maybe the Bible, but, but times have changed. Yeah, maybe the Bible, but you know, in this, in this specific instance, God doesn't talk about that. I've heard people say things like that. And here's the reality. There are no excuses. There are no extenuating circumstances. When God says, thou shalt not, we shouldn't. When God says you must, we must. It is that simple. 
And you could take that for every command in the Bible. It is that simple. When we try to create a gray area, we have to realize that there is, just like Jesus said, a narrow path. There's one way, and then every other way is wrong. There is God's way, and every other way is wrong. So my way is wrong. The Macedonia way is wrong. Only God's way is right. We have to recognize that. There's no other right way. It is only God's way. So Samuel can't see this, uh, or Saul can't see this. He keeps kind of equivocating and, and, um, and, and I, guess, I guess you would say making excuses, things like that. Um, the fact that Samuel or Saul says we were going to sacrifice some of this, but it's already condemned. The standards for a sacrifice were very high. It had to be perfect. It had to be spotless. It, it had to be holy. You can't sacrifice something to God that isn't good in the first place. It's worthless. Also, it's stolen, by the way, because God said kill it, destroy it, whatever, and, and yet they were trying to sacrifice that. So you can't, you can't steal something from somebody. In other words, I can't Sunday morning before we get started and I'm shaking hands, I can't pick all your pockets and, and when I got all your money, go to the offering plate and put some of it in it, that's not really my offering. But that's basically what Saul did. That's exactly what he did. He, he gave what wasn't his in the first place or was ready to give, but it wasn't, it wasn't really given. Um, you know, God points out to, to Samuel something. He made him, or it's, God points out to Saul something. God made him king. Saul didn't become king because he was a great military leader. He didn't become king because he was a great, you know, political guy. He became king because God chose him. And so God made him king. Saul, and this is something that Samuel says, Saul thought that his actions only affected himself. That's what Samuel says. I know you think you're a little person, but aren't you the head of all the tribes of Israel? Let me tell each of us today, nothing that I do, nothing that you do, nothing that any of us does only affects ourselves. There is always ripples that go out from that. It may be your witness and testimony. It, 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 it may be the effect that it has on someone else. But it's always going to matter what we do. At every single time, at every single moment, it matters. And so that was one of the things um, that, that, that Saul has to recognize. God gave him this really important mission and he failed to complete the objective. So I might ask you, is the mission that God gave to Saul to kill all the Amechalites, is that more significant or less significant than the mission that he gave us to make disciples of all nations? Certainly it's more significant. God's judgment versus God's redemption. The, 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 the word that God said one time and fulfilled it, or the word that God promised over and over repeatedly throughout the Old and New Testament and has been working towards all this time, that is the most important mission. And so we look at Saul, and he had a tough job, but he didn't do it. We have a tough job. Are we doing it? I think it is worth asking that question. Are we doing this difficult job that we are supposed to do? God wasn't going to accept the sacrifices that, that, that Saul wanted to make. Samuel actually gives this kind of poem, this poetic thing, verse 22 and 23, um, where he talks about, you know, or he asks the question, is God going to delight in burnt offerings or obedience? Like, what, what's he want more? And, and the point, obviously, is that God expects complete obedience. And then at the end of it, he basically says, Saul has been rejected as king. And then you have this whole other thing where Saul asks Samuel, hey, will you come back with me? Let's make it look like everything's fine and good and dandy. Uh, and that's when Samuel walks away and says, nope, I'm not going to do that. And so Saul grasps on his garment. And, that, and then 
Samuel gives this really harsh judgment saying, you're, you're cut off. You know, I'm going to give the kingdom to your neighbor uh, who's better than you. There's going to be a different king. So the Lord rejects Saul, but he does promise a better king than Saul in the future. And so then the, the language is it's kind of hard reading it again in, in, in English, but basically what, what Samuel agrees to is to go back and let Saul repent before the people. That's, that's what he agrees to go back to. So he's not going to go back because, he, because Samuel says the glory of God is not made out to be a liar. And so you can't go and, and, and halfway obey God's commands and then walk around and parade around like you've actually done what God commands you to do. And Samuel was not going to be a part of that, that play, that production. He wasn't going to be a part of that. And so when Saul is willing to at least admit that he sinned, that's when Samuel will go and, and he, he will uh, be there. But God had one other appointment, and y'all, this, is, this was rough. So Saul goes and does what he's supposed to do, and Samuel says, well, bring me the, this, this king, this Agag. And Agag believes all the killing's over. He believes that, that he's in good spirits. He's like, well, you know, I ain't, I ain't got nobody to rule over anymore, but I'm alive. You know, at least you got your health, right? And then he sees this old prophet standing there. And... Samuel has a mission. Now, there have always been people who have used religion to exert power and a negative kind of power over other people. Samuel gets no joy out of what he's about to do. I would expect that it's among the worst things that he ever did. I would imagine that, that he related what he had to do to the sins and the evil choices that Saul had made. And that was part of the reason that he would grieve the rest of his life over what all had happened. But he knew what he had to do. And if Saul and the soldiers wouldn't do it, he did it. And so the Bible tells us that this old prophet that had served the Lord his whole life hacks a man to pieces in front of everybody. Now, I don't think there was a whole lot of talking going on. I don't think a lot of people ask questions. But I believe everybody got the message. This was about judgment. But it was also about obedience. If the others won't do it, God will raise up somebody who will. How do we deal with this? As a, as a church, we're, we're not a physical army. God's not called us to a violent lifestyle. We have to understand that that there are parallels, but there's not exact comparisons. What do we do with this? What we see is that God is going to call you at times to do the most awful things that you can imagine. Not morally awful, just the most difficult things. Can you imagine having to do what Samuel had to do? Every bit of it was bad. The end was the worst, but every bit of it was bad. But he did it. He had to display perfect obedience. We have to recognize that we have to do the same thing. Samuel's going to continue to grieve over Saul the rest of his life. Saul's not going to see him ever again. We're reminded that God once again grieves over the life of Saul. And, and, and based on the chronology, it seems like Saul reigns for quite some time after these events. But what we have to remember is that in this moment, Saul had an opportunity to obey God. We want to focus on what God said and what God did and the king and all those things, but what we need to focus on is Saul had an opportunity and he didn't take it. And what are we going to do?
Because, see, this is a harsh passage, but it's not difficult to apply it to our lives. It's something that we actually can apply to our lives. Christians today need to hear that God is a holy God who demands the obedience of his people. Everybody needs to know that God loves them. Everybody needs to know that Jesus came to to save us of our sins. But everybody also needs to know that God is a God of judgment. You know, the reality is people think that they can take God a la carte. I'll take his love. I'll take some parts of Jesus. I'll take the last two chapters of Revelation, just a little bit, here and there, sprinkle it along, like you're at a salad bar. And nobody's making you get the healthy stuff. But what we have to recognize is that God doesn't come in parts. You get God or you don't get God. You are His or you are not His. You will be saved or you will be judged. It is that simple. Saul chose his own path and he was judged for it. We have to recognize that each of us are responsible for that. That should create an urgency in us when we're talking to other people. Because God will judge. He is delaying it out of patience. That is His mercy. But there's coming a day when God will judge. We've got to remember that we serve a holy God who is kind, just, and demanding. He doesn't ask for us just to do the easy things. He asks asks for us to do all the things that are required for obedience. And so, if I had to challenge you this morning, I would challenge you, look at your own life. First of all, are you living with anything that God's already condemned? If you are, get rid of it. Whatever it is. Go scorched earth, just like Saul was supposed to do. Get rid of it. Whatever it takes. Rip the band-aid off. Whatever metaphor you need, get rid of whatever it might be. But the second thing, we need to ask ourselves, are we being fully obedient to God? Or are we being fully obedient to God? There, we all have our moments of, of good and bad. We need to make sure that we are being fully obedient, totally committed to God. You might say, well, I don't know about a God that would tell somebody to go kill women and children. Well, I will tell you, that same God was willing to kill his own child to save you. And so we need to recognize the power of that love and the seriousness of that judgment and submit our lives to him, whether you're a Christian or not, We have to daily submit ourselves to Him. So that would be my challenge for each of us. Let us look deeply into our lives. Are we submitting to Him or are we trying to run the show ourselves and get away with compromises? Because that's not going to cut it. Just because He hasn't judged yet does not mean He will not judge. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, it is difficult. It is difficult. We, We love to talk about Your love and We love to point out all the promises that you've kept. Well, this morning we looked at a promise you kept. You said you would wipe a people, a whole people group from memory, and you did that. They don't exist anymore. Father, I pray that you help us to remember that you mean what you say. Not like we mean what we say, but like you mean what you say. Let us trust your word. Let us obey your word. The warnings that exist in the Bible are there to keep us accountable. And I pray this morning that we see those warnings, we listen to those warnings, so that it goes no further. Make us obedient, make us faithful to you. Make us the people that will do what you ask us to do. 
When we look at that passage, we see Saul, who looks like so many people who would call themselves Christians. Doesn't really understand a lot. He does partially what you tell him to do. And then he kind of makes his own way. And then we see Samuel, who is in tune with you. Who is willing to do whatever you ask him to do. I pray that we would have a faith and an obedience like that of Samuel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.